Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When we take any action, especially in rebellion, the emotional satisfaction of doing what we want, whenever we want, creates the illusion of freedom. But what does it mean to be free? To the extent that Scripture knows exactly how we are going to behave, when we disobey its instruction, can we honestly claim that we are in control of our lives? Moreover, to what lengths will we go to maintain this illusion of control? As if to amplify the warning of the Gerasenes' bondage in Mark chapter 14, everyone surrounding Jesus is confronted with a choice. Obey scripture or obey your chains. Submit to the Lord's teaching or commit violence against it. Accept the Lord's control, which is life-giving, or embrace your chains bound to your own destruction. How, chief priests, do you solve a problem like Jesus? You may think that you're preserving your temple by attacking him, but how can you sack a temple without walls? You desperately want to believe that you've arrested him, but how do you catch a cloud and pin it down? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 53 to 65. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 202 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So we've just come from the scene of the betrayal, not just Judas's kiss of Jesus identifying him to the authorities, but the betrayal of one in their company striking off the ear of the slave of the high priest. It may be that the function of Judas slash Judah is to act out the betrayal of Jesus in the narrative, but the betrayal plays itself out through many characters in many different ways. And so now we're going to see what it is that they betrayed. What is this teaching proposing? How does this teaching operate? How does it take shape in the world? They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. The problem with the chief priests and the elders and the scribes is that up to this point, they've tried to deal with Jesus first by gossiping with his disciples, and then Jesus would jump in. Another way is by directly confronting him and arguing with him. Now, they need to hold him under their thumb so that they can have the upper hand in arguing with him. Jesus argues from Torah. He has no other power. He has no other strength. He has no other ability. People love to talk about his ability to raise the dead and do all these miracles and things like that. But he has nothing in his hands he only functions according to Torah. So the chief priests and the elders and the scribes have to bring in the sword. This is the problem with 
how people argue with the word. The only way to get an upper hand is in a worldly way, through worldly strength, and through the power of the sword. And this is how they're trying to argue and work against Jesus. But you can't get an upper hand on the teaching, because either you submit to the teaching and put the sword down, or you pick up the sword and do exactly what the teaching says idiots with the sword will do. There's no way around it. The teaching controls the situation. This is very difficult for modern listeners who've embraced postmodernism and personal truth and all of this nonsense. Because they ignore the fact that phenomena in the world are phenomena in the world. There are patterns. It may be that certain types of phenomena are much more complex and difficult to understand, but that does not mean that they can't be understood. So in this sense, scripture is conducting a kind of behavioral science. This is what the human animal does when he takes power. So we know what they're going to do to Jesus, and we know what Jesus is going to do. They are unwillingly controlled by the wisdom of the law, but Jesus is willingly controlled by that wisdom. There's only three ways that you can react to Jesus' teaching. You can either submit to it, you can ignore it, or you can fight it. Now let me talk to the people who ignore it. When you ignore it, unwillingly, you fall into the third camp, where you do violence against it. And this is how the second is actually a false path. There is no second path. You're either submitting to it or you're doing violence against it. And that's what we see in the reading. The people who are supposedly rejecting the teaching and ignoring it are complicit in the violence. You're either actively violent or you're passively violent if you don't submit to the word. That's the way that this all shakes out in the gospel. If you hear the word, you can either be violent or you can be submissive. Those are the only two choices. This is a strong challenge to the listener to think about the violence that you are causing to the word when you inevitably stop submitting to it. The decision is not whether or not to do the commandment. The decision is where to place your trust. Once you've made that decision, there are no more choices. For Jesus Christ, there's no space between the commandment and the action. There's no deliberation. It's commandment. And if you think about the scenes of demon possession earlier in Mark, those scenes in the text have to frame how you view everybody around Jesus right now. Because either you obey the commandment without hesitation, without any oxygen in between the utterance and the act, or you behave as a demon-possessed man in chains. But the point is, the in chains part of the phrase, because you imagine that since you're not obeying as Jesus is obedient, that you must be free. But again, you are still being controlled. You're just being controlled by a different mechanism. And that's why we can step back and say, ultimately, since scripture understands and judges the mechanism that controls those who are possessed, scripture controls the whole situation. What's the difference between the chief priests and the garrison demoniac? They're both controlled by a set of chains. One is physical chains, the other are mental chains, but they're still controlled instead of submitting to the word. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Two things I want to say about this verse. First, it calls to mind the insertion of Mark in the previous section. 
Mark was following it, and now Peter is following at a distance. Mark waffled between Peter and Paul in the biblical narrative. His loyalties faltered back and forth. So you see here now a kind of parallel with these two characters. The second thing that I love about this verse, and it always strikes me during the Holy Week services when we read this in the assembly, Peter isn't just following at a distance. He's standing there warming himself. He's taking care of himself. It's so sarcastic. The last table he sat at was Jesus's table. Now he's sitting with the employees of the chief priest. It would be like one of us seeing a good friend being taken to court unjustly to be executed and going out to dinner the same night with the people who framed him. I mean, it's understandable that out of cowardice you might betray your friend or not want to be associated with him or deny him. But now you're going to dinner with the people who set him up? Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. So, not only is Peter sitting with their people, but as he's sitting with them, warming himself, taking care of his own skin, he does so as they keep counsel nearby, trying to hatch new accusations against Jesus. Their initial plot has worked, but now they need evidence to make sure it sticks and they can get rid of their problem. And Peter's right there, waiting for their judgment. And the way that they do judgment is upside down compared to Torah. I mean, it really shows their ignorance of Torah. Their first thought is the punishment. And then they try to work justice in order to get the correct punishment to come out. They're not interested in justice. They're not interested in righteousness, tzedakah. They're interested in putting him to death. So the justice is twisted from the very beginning. But it isn't just, oh, they're unjust, like a wicked judge in a movie. These are people who are chief priests, and their only job, as we see in Hosea 4, is to teach Torah. And they are working against Torah in a 180 degrees opposite of the direction that Torah is sending you. Torah sends you to justice, and they are looking at how do we find a case and make a case to put him to death. They are reading the situation. They are trying to impose their judgment the way that modern readers of the Bible begin with what they want the Bible to say. It's another version of proof texting. You have an end in mind that you want. You have an agenda. And what's powerful about this analogy, Richard, is that the human agendas that people impose on Scripture always lead to violence. And that's what we're seeing here with the chief priests. They have an objective, which is their own glory. Like Peter, they want to take care of themselves. If you begin with that objective, and then you decide what you want, and then you read Torah, of course you're going to end up deciding Jesus should be killed. It's especially striking because Scripture, unique among all different wisdom traditions upon the earth, completely undermines and emasculates the human being. So how can... You begin with a human premise and then try to get to a divine outcome. The outcome is that you're going to kill the Lord's Messiah. This puts the arguments they were having with Jesus in a new light because at the time it looked like they were arguing about Torah, about marriage and about the Sabbath and all these other arguments they're having with him. But now we see that the actual 
point was not to understand Torah better. And this is why Jesus was always able to read their hearts and understanding what they were trying to do in their hearts. Because ultimately, it was not about Torah. It was about controlling Jesus and therefore controlling Torah so it could function the way that they wanted. And what they wanted is the outcome. Like you said, Father, people have this outcome in mind of what they want Torah to say. And ultimately, you either have to reject it or put it to death. But as I said a moment ago, it's the same thing. You have to do violence to the word if you're going to control it. Otherwise, you're submitting to it and holding silent. If you are ever surprised by human behavior, if you are ever scandalized by human behavior, whether it be corruption or abuse or any kind of neglect or cruelty, if any of this ever surprises you, you're not scriptural. Because from Genesis to Revelation, we keep hearing how bad the human being is. And then on cable news, when human beings do something terrible, everyone looks shocked. Why? Because the law does not abound, and therefore you have no wisdom or insight, and grace does not abound. Because where the law abounds, people understand their own corruption. When you understand your own corruption, you're never shocked by somebody else's corruption. So the scandal of innocence is actually the glory of self-righteousness. These people, they get on TV and they say he was such a nice boy, I don't know how he did it, are probably party to why he did it. Because their comment betrays their lack of self-knowledge. Human beings are very predictable. If you hear scripture and you accept the truth about yourself, you realize that it's not some deep mystery. It's selfishness versus the cross. And that's why the metaphor of Peter warming himself is so damning in this particular setting. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Because, as scripture teaches us, empty words, vain words, have no substance, Richard, and they fall to the ground. Every lie ultimately fails, because no matter how well crafted, there's always that one peg called the truth that you can pull out and the whole thing Unravels. It shows how hard they were trying to come up with a case to put him to death, and they couldn't because Jesus did nothing worthy of death. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how many people they talked to, even his own enemies, they couldn't come up with a case. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Now the power of this statement is that scripture, because it knows that violence begets violence, that the sword brings the sword, that identity produces suffering, that tribe against tribe is the problem. Scripture, insofar as it understands this and is judging this, knows that the temple made with hands will be destroyed. It's true both in a sociological sense, but even in a basic scientific sense, because everything crumbles in the end. But on the sociological side, you're building something temporary that does not convey meaning, and it's built in such a way that other people oppose it. You're going to come to blows over it, and one day it will be gone. That's the temple made with human hands. The temple not made by human hands is the body politic of Jesus which is constructed with the teaching. 
you can't declare war on a building architected by a teaching. What are you going to tear down? You could try to kill the teacher. But if he succeeded in sowing the seed in Mark, it won't matter that you've killed the teacher. Exactly. Now we're getting down to business. I think it's interesting, too, how there are all these false testimonies that were given against Jesus. But the author of Mark decided that this is the one that he wanted to tell. Why this one? He's going to tear down the temple and rebuild a new one. But why did none of their testimony agree with each other? Because no one understood what he was trying to say. And this is where Mark gets an extra dig against the people. Because Jesus said this, but no one understood. Jesus did not destroy the temple any more than God in the prophets actually sent the king of Babylon to attack Jerusalem. The point isn't that Jesus actually destroyed it. The point is that the truth controls the situation. If you build a temple, it will one day come to an end. If you don't obey me and you choose other gods and you choose violence and you worship power, you're going to invite the wrath of other kings. And guess what? Those other kings, including the king of Assyria, may actually be correct for smiting you. In which case, practically speaking, absolutely God smote you. It's literature, Richard. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So, we have on the one hand the weightiness of the debar, the substance of the word. It's integrated with the way things actually work. And this ultimately is the biblical play against Hellenism. Scripture's currency is how things actually work, the way things are, what is actually in the world. It's not abstract like a philosophical idea or a very clever lie as we have here in Mark. And as such, Scripture can't be inconsistent. And that's why the only valid Bible study is one that goes verse by verse. That's the only hope you have for your Bible study being consistent because Scripture keeps correcting you. This pregnancy with the Word is so essential. A woman doesn't talk about a baby in abstraction. There's a baby in her womb, and she knows because it kicks. That's why it's silly when men say, we're pregnant. Baloney! You don't have a baby in your stomach. What does we're pregnant mean? We're pregnant is Hellenism. A woman saying, I'm pregnant, is scripture. You have to know the difference. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Why would Jesus answer? They can't agree among each other. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders have no case. Jesus knows that he's right, so he ignores them. Why would he answer them? Not only why would he answer them, not only as you're saying, Richard, why should he validate their nonsense, but he doesn't answer to them. In the previous episode, as you said, who's following what leader? Jesus follows his father. Why would he answer the high priest? But he kept silent and did not answer. And again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is Daniel. This is Ezekiel. This is the beautiful, beautiful image of God's kabod in Hebrew, his weightiness, his glory, riding upon the clouds. Now, 
How can you have a temple made without hands? And how can something glorious float on a cloud? Glory here is something that actually has weight. The mightier the king, the heavier the statue of the deity in the temple in the city, the more glorious. That's why glory is connected to greatness. Coming on the clouds, but not like the chief priests and the scribes and the elders view themselves, a strong, powerful one, but simply a man with a teaching. This is it. That's all that's coming. There is no sword in the physical sense. The only weapon is this word. God only travels with his word. And the word is very specific, not an abstract word, but a teaching, a dabar, like you said. It's Torah. So you have a temple, Richard, that you can't visit and that you can't lay hands on. And you have something heavy, and it's, in fact, lighter than a cloud. As I've told my parishioners for many years, it reminds me of that beautiful song in the story of the Von Trapp family, The Sound of Music. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How, and this is the question they're all puzzling over, how do you catch a cloud and pin it down? You can imprison someone, you can blow up a building, you can execute a thousand people, but if they've been sowing the seed of their teaching, you can't win. This is God thumbing his nose first at the chief priests, scribes, and elders. But secondly, and of equal importance, he's thumbing his nose at Caesar. Not at the Roman people, but at Caesar. Remember in scripture, it is the rulers that are always under judgment because whether they are from the tribes or they are from the Roman polity, they assert their ego against God. And that is the definition of Antichrist. And that is why the 666 in Revelation is the mark of Julius Caesar. Because he looks impressive, he looks glorious, but he's an imposter. The last thing I want to say about this section, Richard, that's very important. When Jesus finally does speak, it's only to confirm the Torah. Because now we're dealing in the currency of God's teaching. What does the teaching say? That the Messiah is the Blessed One, and that hereafter the Son of Man will be coming in power and riding upon the clouds and so forth. So even when Jesus opens his mouth, it's not for him to speak but for him to confirm what is written. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need have we of witnesses? So Jesus acknowledges scripture on the lips of the chief priest, and then he quotes scripture back to him, because what does Jesus do? Even when he's put on trial, Jesus conducts Bible study. And for conducting Bible study in the midst of the court, what do they do? They decide, we now have proof this man should be killed. So why are they killing Jesus? For teaching. He says he's the son of the blessed. This supposedly is the proof they were looking for so that they would have a reason to put him to death, to say that he's the son of the blessed. But what does it mean to be a son of the blessed one? It's to be one who's the son of the teaching. This isn't so scandalous unless you're trying to close off sonship to those within your clan, so to speak. The clan is open. Anyone who is a son of the teaching is a son of the blessed. That's why Jesus can easily say, yeah, I am. And so is the prostitute and the thief. So now what are we going to do? Then the chief priests are stuck. Who is he to say he's a son of the teaching? Hmm. I don't know. Chief priest, I was hoping you would agree, actually, that you were a son of the teaching. But instead of submitting to the teaching, chief priest, you want to destroy the teaching. You want to do violence to the teaching. You have heard the blasphemy. 
How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. So this is how the one who teaches is treated. This is how the one who brings the judgment of the word is judged. This is how scripture understands human behavior. Because at the heart of all of this is our lust for survival and self-preservation. All of us want to stand with Peter and warm ourselves at the fire, even if it means getting close to the people that betrayed our friend and our teacher. All of us are guilty of this because all of us are motivated by self-preservation. And to the extent that the commandment is a counter-narrative against human instinct, how could there be any other outcome when Jesus is embodying this commandment in their midst? How could they not want him dead? How could they not want to destroy him? He poses too big a threat. People want power. It's significant that only when the chief priest says, go get him, boys, that they all go after him. It's at the word of the high priest, because that's the one that they're listening for. They're not listening to the word. They're listening to the chief priest. Now, this capital accusation of blasphemy is the last refuge of the wicked. This is what every group who wants control uses. Whether a Muslim looking for who the infidels are, or if the Christian looking to see who should be excommunicated, the people's desire for control is always exercised in who blasphemes or who doesn't, who insults the name of God or who doesn't. But this is based on nothing. Or who's against freedom or who loves freedom. I'll never forget, after 9-11, I moved back to the Midwest, my wife and I, and I was working at a company, and it was just before the first Iraq war. And I was really sad at the time and really frustrated having lived through 9-11 and seen the destruction, and also understood the magnitude of the suffering in other parts of the world that precipitated the ugliness of 9-11. I was really sad when they began to beat the war drums with eyes on Iraq. Because it was clear that there was no real connection between 9-11 and Iraq. In fact, we know now, factually speaking, the connection was in Saudi Arabia. But there were ulterior motives, not unlike the chief priests and the elders and the scribes in this story. People had ulterior motives. And so many people were so afraid in our country because they felt their security threatened existentially, that they were like the mobs in scripture, just waiting for someone to say, get him. I'll never forget, I was at the office where I worked, and they had TV screens up, and people were watching CNN, and the first missile was shot, and everyone in the office cheered. And I thought to myself, this is horrible. What are they cheering for? What are they cheering for? What did we just achieve? And we know now, all these years later, what we achieved. We achieved the absolute destruction and demise of so many societies in the Middle East. To what end? And by asking the question, to what end, I'm asking, where is it leading? Because the situation hasn't stabilized. The New York Times recently interviewed one of the people whose house was blown up by one of those precision bombs and how he lost his wife and his children. 
and had to start his life over again somewhere else. What are we cheering about? Until we can see Jesus Christ in our enemies, we are the architects of our own destruction. And we're off sitting on the side, warming ourselves at the fire. Thanks very much, Dr. Mental. Thank you, Father. just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.